The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. The name of the show is The Unlikely Innovators. And we so often talk to tech entrepreneurs and people really changing the way things are done in a bunch of different sectors. Today, we have the great fortune of someone who's really made an impact and an innovative impact in the how in how uh, war films are made. Mike, who do we have for us today? We had Captain Dale Dye talk to us today, Steve, and it was honestly an absolute pleasure. Um, I think he's somebody where you and I grew up watching these films, right? I remember vividly going to the movies to watch Saving Private Ryan, which is a, one of the films that, that Captain Dale Dye had worked on. So I think for us, you know, having consumed those films and those TV shows like Band of Brothers, like it was a real treat to hear from, you know, from the man himself who had a, such a big hand in getting the, those movies produced the way that they are. And he was obviously in those films as well. Um, but I think to your point, you know, what he did, you know, after his military service and bringing his experience and his approach to Hollywood revolutionized the way, you know, the film industry approached war and, and military uh, films. And so I think, you know, initially you, you, you kind of said this at the end to, to, to Captain Die. Um, but I think for a lot of our listeners who may not be familiar with his work or, or maybe they've seen him in some of these shows that I think just, again, the impact that he's had, um, you know, and he, he may be an unlikely innovator, but it seems like after having talked to him and we'll kind of save that for the listeners is that, you know, I don't think it was that unlikely. I think it, it was always there and it just took some time to develop. And, and we're obviously so glad that he did what he did because I think he's, he's, he's left his mark. That's for sure. We're definitely all richer for it. It's, it's really the difference between films being entertainment and almost uh, leading to after uh, Captain Die's influence, almost being themselves historical documents, as in the case of Band of Brothers, uh, one of the shows he was a consultant on. So uh, we're not going to say anything more. We're going to let uh, Captain Dale Die do the talking. So here is Captain Die. We're now very pleased to be joined by Captain Dale Dye. Uh, Captain Dale Dye is one of the most recognized and respected players in the movie and TV industry. His work has had a huge effect both behind and in front of the cameras, particularly in projects with a military focus. He has been credited with single-handedly changing the way Hollywood makes war movies. Captain Dye served three tours in Vietnam, surviving 31 major combat operations. He emerged from Southeast Asia, highly decorated, including the Bronze Star with V for Valor and Three Purple Hearts for wounds suffered in combat. He spent 13 years as an enlisted Marine, rising to the rank of Master Sergeant before he was chosen to attend Officer Candidate School. After retiring from active duty in 1984, Dale decided to head for Hollywood to see if he could help make war movies more realistic and improve screen portrayals of military men and women. The rest, as they say, is history. Through Warriors, Inc., his consulting company, Captain Die, has worked on more than 50 movies and TV shows, including Platoon, Saving Private Ryan, and Band of Brothers, to name a few. And now we're so excited to have you join us on the Life Innovators. So Captain Dye, the first question that we, we always like to start with is, is the career path that our guests have taken to get where they are. And, you know, in, in doing our homework and in research about you, you know, we understand that you were initially drawn to military service because of, you know, war films that you saw when you were younger with, uh, with actors like John Wayne that you watch as a kid. Can you talk about, you know, did those films actually draw you in and what was it about them that made you want to potentially look at, uh, at going into the service? Well, I think I think I was like any young man um, in the in the 1950s. Uh, life at home seemed boring, and and the movies and television later were, were a way to kind of escape that sort of thing and live the dream, if you will. Uh, and uh, I I was surrounded as as a young man by uh, gents who had come home from uh, war uh, World War Two, mm -hmm. and uh, well their wives and, and their kids uh, all got uh, terribly bored by listening to them. I did not. I, I just soaked it all up. And I saw that as a way to get out of uh, small town America. And, and I had this tremendous itch to see what was always on the other side of the hill. And, you know, not having a great deal of money or access to uh, educational opportunities and that sort of thing. Um, it, it seemed to me that, um, maybe I should test myself. And in testing myself, uh, taking a look and see if I could get involved in all of these great glorious things that I was seeing on the movie screen. Uh, and so um, in, uh, in uh, late 1963, I uh, 
uh, saw a sign outside of a post office and it had this rock-jawed Marine in dress blues and he was pointing his finger at me. And it just said one word, it said ready with a question mark. And I said, yeah, by God, I am. So I went in and enlisted um, and, and qu- was quickly disabused of the fact that uh, glory and waving flags and blowing bugles are, are everybody's, uh, uh, in everybody's future. But it, it was, uh, it, it was an opportunity to get a hold of myself, to, to see if I was really that guy. And as it turns out, I guess I was, or I was one of them anyway. That's, uh, you know, in my mind, you know, Mike and I are both historians by training. And uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm always so used to hearing like the, the I want you sign, but ready is even more uh, sort of concise than I want you or we want you, right? Yeah, it's, well, it's a lot like the Marine Corps. You know, they go right to the nut of the issue. They go right to the meat of the issue. And the question was, uh, are you the kind of guy? Are you ready to take the challenge? And uh, so it, it, it resonated with me quite a bit. For sure. And um, you sort of alluded to this, but I mean, you were disabused of, of that view of what uh, combat and the military is pretty quickly, I imagine, upon, upon joining up and eventually being deployed. Um, so at what point during your, your long 22 years of service did you start to think about how the, the, what we see in films could be made more accurately by someone like yourself? Well, I think it was the first firefight. Uh, the first time somebody shot at my poor dumb ass and, and there I was and, and people were going down and, and rounds were flying and, and people were dying, as, as they say. Uh, I knew right away that um, a couple of things were true. Um, and, and, and these things, even, even in my relatively immature mind and, and inability to, uh, to um, think much beyond the moment, um, what I, what I learned was combat is, is the ultimate crucible. Um, it, it is a situation in which um, you can observe uh, both, the, both the absolute best that mankind has to offer and the absolute worst that mankind has to offer. And that, again, uh, not to uh, overuse the cliche, but that resonated with me. Uh, I said, you know, there is here... Um, if we're willing to take a look at it, if we're willing to open our eyes and, and, and look at it honestly, uh, these are fantastic stories. These are, these are, the, uh, these are a view of, of humanity, um, both its absolute best and its absolute worst. And after a while, I began to say, well, if, if that's the case, and if, if people are as interested in it as I am, and they should be, um, why isn't it reflected in the stories that, that piqued my interest and, and excited me when I was a young man? Uh, why, why are these things so disconnected from reality? Um, and isn't, and this was another mental leap, isn't reality in the case of war stories, isn't reality much more interesting and much more dramatic than, and, than what I had been seeing and what screenwriters with no military experience and certainly no combat experience were coming up with. And it occurred to me uh, much, much later, a decade later, two decades later, that uh, maybe there was some way to do something about that. And, and, and I think I looked around and I said, well, look, you're, you're a, a, of Irish heritage and you're a natural storyteller. I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who has, you know, when everybody's gathered around drinking beer around the, around the campfire, I'm the guy that could tell the shaggy dog story and make it last for 45 minutes. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just that kind of, uh, kind of individual. And I said, well, maybe, maybe there's a way to tie that up with these insights I've had about the reality of, um, of mortal combat. And, you know, I want to get to that in terms of how you eventually took that idea and, and brought it to Hollywood. But one of the things I did want to kind of go back to is that it's my understanding that as part of your service, you also served, you know, as a correspondent in combat as well to really understand the operations and, and the ins and outs you wanted to immerse yourself. So when you, when you eventually, you know, realized that you could take your experience and leverage it in Hollywood, how, how important was that role that you had as a correspondent in helping you kind of formulate uh, your approach uh, to what you would eventually bring to Hollywood? Well, I think it was crucial, uh, frankly, 
Um, I was fortunate enough to be one of a very few, uh, a double handful of Marine Corps combat correspondents who were essentially uh, line journalists. Um, uh, it, it was, we were, we were mandated to go out and tell these little hometown stories about guys in combat. Uh, and in my view, there was only one way to do that, and that is be with those guys in combat. Mm -hmm. And as a trained observer, um, as, as a journalist, uh, although military journalist, um, it, it gave me an opportunity to not only see more and more and more, but to see it from different perspectives. Uh, and I always had this great, uh, great admiration for what I call Rudy in the rear rank with a rusty rifle. That's that little guy who never gets any credit. <laughs> Um, but he's, he's truly the hero of the story. He always is the hero of the story because it all falls on him. Uh, success or failure in combat all falls on that little guy. And so uh, he was my hero. He was, he was the one I wanted to talk about. And I was blessed with the ability to kind of uh, observe those people um, and, to, and to observe them not only in terms of their behavior in combat or, or in their actions in combat, but their behavior what was going on in their hearts and in their minds and in their guts. And I knew it. I knew what was going on because I was experiencing it. And so I guess, I guess I was kind of the, the early, early uh, version of the gonzo journalist. You know, I was, I was in the middle of the story and, and much of my observ uh, observations were based on what I experienced personally, shoulder to shoulder with Rudy in the rear rank with a rusty rifle. So uh, I think uh, that's, that's a long way of getting to your question, which is that I think that experience and being allowed to observe things that way was crucial to what I eventually came up with. Yeah. And then in, in terms of, you know, taking that, obviously, there's no question that you had that experience that you believed, you know, you could leverage and kind of help reinvent the way that, you know, Hollywood approaches military focused projects, but what was the process like for you getting into that? And, and, you know, how did you, can you maybe talk us through how you landed your first gig in Hollywood? And, and, you know, was there ever any point during that where you thought, you know, maybe this isn't, this isn't working or, or it's time to throw in the towel or did you just keep, you know, focused on your mission until, until you kind of, uh, you got that first gig? Well, uh, um, frankly, um, it didn't go well. <laughs> When I, when I thought, uh, you know, they, what, what they say is that uh, when you're ignorant, you can do a lot of things that people tell you you can't do. And God knows that was true in my case. I had no idea. I had this concept that there was a better way to do a more interesting, more entertaining, more insightful, more educational way to do war movies. But that's about all I had. I, I had an idea, um, but I had no acquaintance with the reality of Hollywood. And, and how things work and who people are and what a writer was and what a director does and, and all of those things. All I knew was from my personal experience, there's a better story to be told here and a better way to tell that story. So I, I fell back on my Marine Corps training and I said, well, look, uh, the deal is these guys who are asked to portray soldiers in extremis have no clue what that means. Um, psychologically, emotionally, or physically. So I said, all right, well, how did, how did I get trained? And, and well, the Marine Corps trained me. They put me in those situations. They made me understand from personal experience what I should be seeing, feeling, thinking, and so on. And I said, well, that's what those actors need. That's what they need. So I'll just find my way out to Hollywood and I'll say, come here, you. You make war movies, you're screwed up, and here's why, and I'm going to unscrew you. Uh, that's where I came into conflict with the reality of how things work in Hollywood. And, and the bottom line of my trying to go around and meet people and so on and so forth, um, and this went on for about a year. Uh, I, was, I was out of money, out of ideas, desperate, didn't know what the hell to do. Um, but I, it's that Marine Corps tenacity. I refuse to say, okay, pee on it, I'm leaving. Um, I said, there's got to be a way I can get through. There's got to be something I can do. And uh, the general reaction that I had from people is, listen, listen, pal, let me explain the reality to you. We have made war movies and made bushel baskets, metric tons full of money doing it this way. And you, 
with absolutely no movie experience whatsoever are going to come in here and tell us there's a better way and we'll make more money. And you're going to put these actors, these pampered actors, through an extremely physical, arduous training period in order to get there to a better story. I don't get it. I don't get it. And furthermore, get out of my office. So that was that was a lot of what I was going through. Um, and I was I was about to let it go. I was about to say, you know, the the definition of stupid is to keep doing the same thing and batting your butt. But there was that Marine Corps tenacity again. And I said, no, no, this mission is not over with uh, until they kill me. Uh, and so um, I, I tried to sort of employ net, early days of networking before much social media and so on and so forth. And the only network I had was uh, a friend of mine who was a fine artist. I'd served with him in Vietnam. And lo and behold, I got a hold of him. He was in LA and he was the storyboard artist for a little remake of a 1950s science fiction film that was being made called Invaders from Mars. Um, and in the story, the reason he and I got together up the thing, he said, you know, in this new script being uh, directed by Toby Hooper, uh, God bless him, Toby's dead now, but, um, but he, was, he was quite a, a character. He said, in, in this story, the Marines kill the Martians. And I said, well, hell, wait a minute. I have absolutely no compunction about killing Martians. And I can get you some Marines. And I'll tell you what, maybe we can work this out. So Keith Crossley, um, God bless Keith, um, got me uh, five minutes with uh, Toby Hooper. And I said, Toby, um, you know, I can make this thing rock and roll. I can make this thing sing. I can bring in LAV-25s and Marines with their weapons and they'll all be moving and shooting just as they re would in real life. And Toby's eyes just lit up. He said, really, you can do that? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, not a problem. I had no idea whether or not I could do that, but I was gonna take the shot. Um, and so I was able to go down and talk a Marine Reserve unit in, in Long Beach, California into coming up. And I was able to talk some people into uh, bringing up the LAV-25, which is a brand new armored vehicle to the Marine Corps at that time. And, and we brought them onto the set. And, uh, and I began to treat them just like I would treat a rifle company. And I began to issue orders and the NCOs all got it. And uh, off they went. And we just killed the hell out of Martians. And they just looked rock and roll. They were just, it was proof positive that the reality is often much more interesting and much more dramatic than anything that's, that you know, the writer comes up with. Well, Toby loved it, absolutely. And uh, he decided that at that point, uh, he'd seen me training and he'd seen me running these, these Marines around. And he said, we're gonna, we're gonna make you an actor. And I said, nah, I don't, and he said, yeah, we are. So he gave me a little bit piece with a line of dialogue in, in the movie. And I got my Screen Actors Guild card. And then I began to say, you know, maybe, maybe I can make this work. Maybe I can do this. Well, um, Invaders from Mars was never any uh, grand hit, um, but it, it, it kind of reinforced my thought that I should, I should carry on with this. And uh, I was, uh, it, it interrupt me if I'm, if I'm over talking oh, here. But, I could um, listen to you all afternoon. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the upshot was that uh, I had learned uh, to read the, the trade papers. Uh, daily variety and the Hollywood Reporter and that sort of thing. And uh, at one point, <clears throat> I was paging through the daily variety and, and I saw this little column by a, a, a columnist by the name of Army Archer. Uh, and he did little gossip pieces uh, regularly in the paper. And uh, I, I noticed a, uh, a piece where Army said that... Um, a relatively, a heretofore relatively unknown writer-director by the name of Oliver Stone was going to do a, a war movie uh, based on his own experience as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. And I said, well, here it is. Nobody knows that war better than I do. If I can just get to this guy, and he was a combat infantryman, he was a soldier. Mm -hmm. So if anybody's going to understand this, this deal that I'm proposing, 
It will be a guy who's actually lived it, who's been through it. And, and through some machinations that I can't really tell you about um, because the statute of limitations may not have run out. <laughs> I, uh, I was able to get another, once again, another five minutes with uh, Oliver Stone. Um, and, and I did my best two minute pitch. I said, here's what I think is wrong with war movies as we know them. Uh, and here's how I think we fix it. And Oliver, you as a guy who's been through this training know what it means to you and how it, how it shapes your behavior and your thinking. And I said, if, if you're gonna take these guys and ask them to be us when we were 19 and 20, they've got to have some sort of experience of that. And, and that did it, that went click. And uh, so Oliver hired me and he gave me 33 actors uh, many of whom were relatively unknown, but included guys like uh, um, Johnny Depp and uh, Charlie Sheen and uh, uh, Forrest Whitaker and Tom Berenger and uh, Willem Dafoe. And he gave me 33 of them. And he said, all right, here's the deal. You got three weeks to take them into the jungles in the Philippines. And they need to live like we lived as combat infantrymen. And, uh, and when you bring them down out of those jungles, they better be you and me at 19 or you're fired. And I said, got it. So uh, I took them all into the, into the deep jungle. And for three weeks, I pressed them. Uh, they dug their own holes and they lived in them. Uh, they only ate twice a day canned rations, assuming they didn't piss me off. They pissed me off, they only ate once a day. And I kept them up at night constantly. And, uh, and I just wore them out. Um, and I exercised this, this one uh, sort of uh, process that I had come up with, and it, it's called stand down. And they trained all day and all night. Um, but there was one period of about an hour right after evening chow when I would call a stand down and they could gather around me and ask me any question that they wanted to know and, and anything that, that they felt they needed to know for what was called on for their character. How does it feel to be injected with morphine? Uh, how does it feel when you get hit by a bullet? Um, what do you think when this is going on and that is going on? And they, all these tremendously insightful, penetrating questions. Mm -hmm. And I was able to not only, in that case, I was able to not only work on their mind and their body, which I was accomplishing every day, but I got into their emotions. I got into the psychology of the thing. And that was, that was manna from heaven for the actors uh, because that's the kind of thing they were asking themselves to keep them from, from just repeating the mistakes of the last bad war movie they saw. Mm -hmm. And so it, it turned out to be, uh, after I brought them down out of, the, out of the mountains, Oliver took one look at it and he said, yeah, that's us. And I said, <laughs> yep, it is. And here we go. And of course, uh, what happened then is we made this little movie called Platoon and we brought it home and uh, it won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture uh, and Best Director for Oliver. And he was very gracious and very kind at the uh, Academy Awards uh, to have me stand and be recognized as a, such a major contributor to, uh, to the success of the film. And... Uh, as you know, nothing succeeds like success in Hollywood. So uh, all of those people who had been telling me I was nuts and had a crazy idea and we shouldn't do this, suddenly the phone is ringing off the hook. <laughs> and, uh, and that's really the start of it. Yeah, I think like, I mean, I like I did say, I could listen to this forever. Uh, this, this is, I, I like, we're both students of history, Mike and I, but I also love these sort of like, inside how things get made in Hollywood is, is always something that I found uh, supremely interesting. I still haven't found out how things get made in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, right. Although every year new movies come out, right? So we don't know. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned that you gave uh, gave Oliver Stone a list of things that didn't work in other, in, in past war movies. Would you mind if you can remember any of the things that you said that may have resonated with him, like where he said, yeah, you know, you know, why do we make war movies like that? Could you uh, shed some light on that a little bit? Well, I started, I started with the physicality. I said, mm -hmm. uh, look, you and I know that we looked like little ragamuffins after a couple of weeks in the field. Our uniforms weren't pressed and we weren't neatly shaved with neat haircuts. And generally we were pissed off and had an attitude like that. And I said, isn't that right? And he said, yeah, of course it is. I said, well, 
we don't see that in war movies, do we? Uh, well, no, I guess we don't. I said, well, that's part of what I'm trying to fix. I'm trying to get us into that mindset. Um, you know, people have a bottomless magazine. You know, you and I know that the magazine for the M16 rifle held 20 rounds, but you only loaded 18. And it, you have to change that magazine when you fired 18 rounds. Um, and you don't stand up and heroically pump rounds at, at the enemy. Half the damn time, you can't see the enemy. And all you see is muzzle flash or a fleeting shadow. And, and I started all of that sort of thing with him. Um, and Oliver had his own agenda. He had his own message uh, about the war in Vietnam. And, and I said, look, I, I get that. I get that you're not happy with the war in Vietnam. And I get that you're not happy with uh, what you saw at war. But I also get that there were some good people over there who tried their damnedest and didn't question it. And they did it because they felt it was their duty. And that resonated with me. He said, yeah, yeah, that actually, that's right. I did know a few of those people. So I, I started in, in that area. I started with the absolute nonsense. You know, a guy gets hit and killed in combat. He doesn't jerk around and do the funky chicken and call for his mama. He just doesn't. Uh, you and I know, Oliver, that when a guy's hit hard, it's just like watching a marionette and the strings get cut and he collapses and hits the ground like a wet sack of cement. And he said, yep, yep, that's right. And I said, well, that's much more dramatic than anything else that we've seen. So let's do it that way. And he, he had it in mind to make it, um, uh, as accurate as he could. Um, I was just telling him things that I think he just needed to hear at that point. Mm -hmm. And he needed to trust somebody that would train to that ideal, to that, to that image, rather than, than the last bad war movie everybody saw. So, so those are some of the things that I started with. And, and there's a million of them that mm -hmm. I've developed over the years uh, that I consider to be you know, the classic military cliches. Uh, the classic war movie cliches. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've trained against them and advised against them for all my career. It's yeah, it's really interesting because obviously Steve and I would have grown up watching the movies that have had your influence on them. Right. And I just think of, you know, when you watch like Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan and, and you see them drop, like to me, that seems more jarring than, you know, a dramatic death because it's just like, that's just how it is. Right. Like that's, there's no, there's no yeah. dramatization. There's no, that. Just, Gone in a minute. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to hear from that perspective, but before we kind of get a little bit more into, into that, cause we want to talk about, you know, some of the other influences you've had, but you know, when, when Toby uh, Hooper, you know, get, made you an actor and, you know, you're blasting Martians, was there a, was there a learning curve for you to, to cause obviously you knew that you were going to try to leverage your experience, but to become an actor, was that something that you saw yourself doing or, or did it kind of just come naturally? Cause you're able to kind of play yeah. into what you knew. I, I looked at it as, as a necessary evil. Um, if, if they want me to go in there and, and talk the talk and, and that sort of thing, okay. Um, but I didn't really look at myself as an actor until actually until Platoon, when, when Oliver arrived on set one day and he said, we're shooting the company commander today. And guess what? The company commander is you. And I said, well, no, wait a minute. Uh, I'm, I'd be in the scene with Charlie Sheen and and Kevin Dillon and, and Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger, these are trained actors. I said, I'll make an ass out of myself. And he said, here's what you do. He said, you be that company commander. You know that guy, you know how to do him. You've seen him, you've been him, just do that. And I said, well, crap, I guess so. And, and I walked in, they dyed my hair and, and I, to make me look like it, there, it was reasonable for me to be a company commander at that age. And, and, uh, and I walked in and did a couple of scenes and uh, the, the, the actors, the trained actors were so good to me. I mean, they taught me lots of things. Um, and, and I felt once, once I felt comfortable with them, with these trained guys, I said, you know, uh, this, I can do this. Not only that, I can do this pretty well. Um, and, and maybe this plays into my overall agenda. And I should say a word about that before we, before we get too much further down the line. 
Um, part, part of the reason I wanted to do this whole thing, uh, wanted to change and improve, if you will, the, the way military movies are, are made and presented, was that I, I felt what I had seen um, really didn't shine a, a, a much deserved and long overdue light on the men and women who wear the uniform. Uh, and that that sounds like a like a cliche, but but it's true. Uh, I felt that showing them showing the reality of it, trying to communicate and convey the reality of it, was much more of a tribute to them than than the flag waving and the and the flag goes up on Mount Suribachi and pull back and run the credits. I just I just felt that um, we owed it to the American public, we, the people who've worn the uniform and been in combat, we owed it to them to give a look at what it's really like. And to me, that was, that was, that was what they deserved and what I wanted to communicate. And so I adopted that agenda. Uh, I said, all right, what, what I do to the extent that I can, to the extent that I can control it, will be designed as revelatory will be designed as showing people the reality of this thing. Um, and again, the entire gamut of human emotions, the best and the worst, um, and most stuff right somewhere smack in the middle. Uh, if I can do that, then I have, I have contributed. I've, I've done something that I think uh, my fellow men and women who've worn the uniform for a short time or a long time uh, deserve. And so I adopted that agenda and tried to live by it all the way through. Yeah, and I has think nothing to do with what you asked me, but there you are. So. No, no, but I think it's it's definitely a worthwhile thing because you know it's not just about you having watched films that don't coincide with your experience. There's there's an agenda here, you know that that I think is is important and relevant for for our listeners to hear. So I think thank you for saying that. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit, uh, bear with me on the way into this question, because I wanted to uh, uh, start by saying I used to watch this show with my dad called Combat um, with Vic Morrow. I'm sure you're familiar with it. it was, Jason and Vic Morrow. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. And Little um, John Kirby and uh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so very entertaining show. Often disbelief was uh, suspended when you see, you know, fake snow you know, bad visual effects. I thought the acting performance was were quite good for, for a, a, a relatively small show like that. But the reason why I bring it up is that was a perfectly fine piece of entertainment. And then as sort of things move on and your influence comes into the industry, also the visual effects get way, way better. Um, but you still sort of need that human element that I think your approach brings to those people. Um, could you talk a bit about that sort of battle between visual effects, but still also maintaining the reality of the people involved? Because, we, you know, we can we can simulate battles that happened 50, 60 years ago with visual effects, but we still need to be brought there to the individual that we're seeing on the screen. Right. Well, that's very insightful. Yes. And, and, and I should mention to you that that battle still continues. Hmm. Um, there is a tendency to think uh, and, and this is this is a result of. Uh, of video games and, and a result of um, you know the the, the internet and, and so on and so forth, um, it there is a, there is a a thought school of thought I guess in Hollywood that the, the the more you can rock and roll the more you can throw atomic bomb blasts up there the more you can make one single hand grenade look like it's a, an atomic detonation the more flames you can throw into things. Um, the, the bigger the success is going to be. And to some extent, with certain audiences, that's true. Um, audiences are weaned on their cell phones and, and, uh, and, and things they see, you know, on, on the Internet. Um, but those stories don't convey the human element. The human element, in fact, becomes secondary to all of the all of the effects. Um, I've fought against that for years, um, and it's a tough fight because money drives everything, and box office drives everything, and, and subscriptions to streamers drives everything. And, and so you find yourself fighting an uphill battle. The, the streamers and the producers will tell you, well, look, we got to have more 
more rock and roll. We got to have more things going off. We got to have more things exploding and so on and so forth. And I said, I say, to what effect mm-hmm. are, are they, are we killing people here or, uh, or, is, or is someone going to deal with this uh, situation? And if so, the person who deals with that situation has to be familiar with it. He has to be aware of it. It's still a human story. Um, and, and that fight, it's, it's sort of a sine curve. Um, sometimes I'm able to really do something and, and convince a director that my biggest, my biggest advocates in that regard, of course, are actors, you know, who, sure. who, who they want to tell a story that involves a human being, namely them. Um, and, and then you've got producers and directors who say, yeah, well, stand over here while we blow some stuff up um, or stand, stand next to the green screen and emote. Um, and it, it's a killer for, for people who, who are trying to communicate a story. So that battle, that battle goes on and on and on. And I'm not, I'm not sure um, who's going to win. Um, but if I have anything to do about it, the human element is going to be there and it's going to be the story. Yeah, I mean, I think that human element is what makes these shows and movies so impactful. And we, you know, Steve and I have one that comes to mind, but we'll save that for a little bit later because we do have some questions about about that. But but on that note, like you've worked on so many, you know, TV shows and films over the years. And and like I said, there's there's definitely a few that are near and dear to our hearts. But for you, having been on all those projects and obviously, you know, you've got the first one that you worked on and, you know, as your career progressed, you've got other passion projects but is there one that sticks out to you after all these years for whatever reason or or how do you kind of compartmentalize the work that you've done over the years uh, it it depends um you know we've we've done everything from um uh, alexander which is ancient greek warriors in which we actually assembled and made run a 256 man greek phalanx <laughs> uh to uh, starship troopers which is 25th century so uh, my my view is that the spirit of the warrior is the same with the guy with a 20 foot sarissa inside that phalanx as it is with the guy who has, uh, you know, a laser weapon up in the 25th century. Uh, so I try to adhere to that. I try to say, look, the story has to involve the spirit of a warrior uh, and the challenges there too. Um, but it's, um, it's a fight. Uh, it's always a fight. Uh, certainly what I learned uh, with Band of Brothers and the Pacific and the new one that, that I've just finished and, and uh, I can't really talk about yet, but uh, what I've learned is the more time you're able to spend. So I'm a huge fan of miniseries, mm-hmm. uh, which Band of Brothers was, a, was the classic. Yeah. Um, because we're able to spend time with those characters and watch them develop and actually look at, watch their emotional growth or their emotional digression, if you will. Um, and, and we get to know them and love them and, and live with them through some of these seminal experiences. And we don't have to compress that into 120 minutes or, or whatever the, the, uh, the seating capacity and, and attention span will allow. So it, it to me, um, I think, I think what I learned was that if, if you really want to tell a story and you want to get the audience involved, um, do it in a miniseries. Yeah, and I think it's an excellent segue because I, 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 you hear this all the time, I'm sure. But Mike and I, I watch Band of Brothers from start to finish once or twice a year. Like that's how much you know, I take it seriously. And usually it's around Remembrance Day. Uh, that's what we call uh, Veterans Day in uh, in Canada, I should say. Um, I'm shocked. Um, I'm aware of it. So. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, like, obviously, we, there's action in those in those episodes, but we're really there for the people. We're we're there for the characters, and that's what I, you go back to. When I find myself remembering why I want to watch the series again, it's never the Battle of Carantan. It's what are the people, it's their downtime. It's, it's how they interact with each other. It's the training at the beginning. It's, it's all of those things. But this was, this is an example of you using the full immersion technique, you know, on a long form miniseries uh, production. Could you talk a bit about the technique used in Band of Brothers? Because I'm sure you don't have as much time with a 120 minute 
film to do an immersion like you would on Band of Brothers. Uh, so well, I try to, I, that? sure, I, I try to uh, do as much immersion, if you will, the method, Captain Stanislavski. Um, I try to do as much of that as I can. And, and the time available depends on a lot of things, script, budget, and, and so on and so forth. But I try to do at least some that will, that will get us rolling in the right direction. But with a miniseries like Band of Brothers, um, I was able to isolate those characters and keep them there for two weeks, uh, take them all the way through the ground elements of Jump School at uh, RAF Bryce Norton, um, and, and really make them live those roles. And, and I, I intentionally would not allow anybody to use their real names. Everybody was always, all the time, no matter whether they are or off, their character names. Um, and, I, and I taught them a lot, I think, about um, there is a larger element. Um, yes, I understand you're an actor. Yes, I understand that you believe that the sun rises and sets on your ass, but it doesn't. Uh, there is a larger element out there, and that is the mission. And the mission, in our case, is this story that we want to tell about these people. Um, and so I said, no matter whether the camera's pointed at you or not, you need to be doing something that these characters would. And I taught them those things. So you'll see in the background of Band of Brothers, people disassembling weapons and cleaning them and so on and so forth. People making uh, coffee or chow and, and that sort of thing. And those are all things I applauded and taught. So that you're, as you say, not only are you, are you getting a, an accurate look at combat uh, in World War II in the European theater of operation, but you're getting a look at those men when they're not necessarily in combat, but they're being a soldier. They're doing what soldiers do. And once the, once the young men that we had in Band of Brothers got a hold of that and understood it, they, I could see it. I could see them literally living those characters. And of course, the fact that we, we had a few of them that were still alive, like Bill Garner and Faye Pepperins, um, and were able to talk to them. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the Academy Award, in my case, uh, came when Babe Heffron, uh, Shifty Powers, um, Bill Garnier, and one other I can't remember right now, uh, visited the set while we were shooting. And I had a, I had a, I'd put weapons out for them so that they could fire them and, and so on and so forth. But what, what got me was they watched a couple of scenes and they watched the characters who were portraying them um, actually do some things. And I can't remember what, what we were doing. It wasn't Karen Tan, but it was uh, one of the, one of the other episodes, but um, Garnier and Heffron came to me as, as they were hobbling their way over to the bus to, to take them back to the hotel. And they pulled me aside and Garnier, when Garnier pulls you aside, you pay attention. He, mm -hmm. he snatched me up by the stacking swivel and, and pulled me aside. He said, Captain Dye, you know, they're like us. And I said, well, Bill, that's exactly what they were, they're designed to be. He said, yeah, but, but they weren't over there with us in 1944. I said, no, they weren't. But I've put them in the mindset. I've put them in the atmosphere and in the environment that you were in. And now I'm turning them loose. And he said, well, by God, you did it right. You did it right. This is a good one. They look just like us. And I was, you know, that was the Academy Award for me. Oh my, that, that is incredible. I mean, you think about it, like by that point, you had a, a pretty uh, a good amount of credits behind you. That must've been like job, job well done. It was worth it, right? You know, we yeah. made it, right? I, I always I always think um, that that was uh, if if anything was a beta that was that was it and uh, and and what it said to me was that my method the captain die method uh, works and uh, and I and I must adhere to it and I can't allow Hollywood to make me compromise it um, and I've I've been able to kind of stick stick to that path. Mm -hmm. It, it pisses off a bunch of directors <laughs> and, and producers occasionally, but, but in, in the end, I think it, it, it produces a better product. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think the results speak for themselves, uh, you know, on the <laughs> screen and, and all these years later, because I think we've kind of touched on, you know, why I think Steve and I keep watching Band of Brothers year after year. And, you know, it was the 20th anniversary, you know, earlier in the fall. Um, 
and we've talked about, I think, you know, the feedback that you got from, from veterans like Bill Garnier, that this is, this is what it was like for them. Right. But in your opinion, like what, what do you think has made the show so timeless and, and, and so rewatchable, I think is the main thing, right? Cause a lot of times you'll watch these, these war films and you'll watch it once and you're, you're probably good for a while, but again, it, I assume it's the characters, but that show is one where it, you just keep watching it and you find something new each time and it just better makes you appreciate uh, the miniseries. Well, your, your initial assessment is spot on. It is the characters and, and how beautifully uh, those young actors, most of whom are Brits, by the way, mm-hmm. um, how beautifully those young actors brought the characters to life and then stayed with them. There's never a misstep. They do what that character would have done. Um, and, and I think another thing that, that most veterans uh, have told me um, is that it's the devil's in the details. They can look at a scene and they've seen it 40 times and they can repeat the dialogue to you and so on and so forth. But the more they look and the more they hit the pause button, they'll find somebody doing something and there's never a misstep. It's something that, oh, he's stringing com wire. I, I used to do that all the time. And it's, it's that kind of detail, I think, that, that adds to the fact, to the longevity uh, of Band of Brothers. Uh, if you look at, at the second piece we did, um, I think we made a few missteps in the Pacific. Um, we tried to do too much. Um, we introduced too many characters and, uh, and didn't give audiences enough time to relate to them and follow them. Uh, we'd follow them for an episode and then jump to another set of characters and another mm-hmm. set. Of and although we won eight Emmys, um, I think we could have done better. Yeah, like yeah I, and I think, go ahead, Mike. Sorry, sorry. I, I was just going to say, like, I've actually just, I've just finished rewatching the Pacific recently. And it's, it's one of those ones where I, I don't watch it as often as, as yeah. Band of Brothers. And I still appreciate, I think, what you guys are able to do. And I think another part of the Pacific that maybe makes it, uh, not as rewatch. I, I find it's, it's more um, harrowing than Band of Brothers. Like I think what you see in the Pacific theater, and that's also the reality of how different it was in, in Europe and the Pacific, that yeah. it's just doesn't have the same vibe. Right. And I think a part of that is, you know, that's, you, that is communicated well in that miniseries, And that's why I think. Well, you know, well it is Mike, but uh, that's one of the things I, I, I kind of assuage my fears when I think about that because uh, I, my father and, and several others that I knew uh, served in the Pacific and it was brutal. It was a, a different enemy, a different environment. The environment itself was the enemy half the time. Um, and, and so we conveyed that, but in conveying that we may have uh, towed around the threshold of exactly how much ugly do you want to see? And that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of with Steven Spielberg. Uh, I, I want to take an unblinking look, which we did in Saving Private Ryan, at how ugly it can get. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think, I think the balance, there's a balance there somewhere. And, and had we stayed with one set of characters, say John Bassalon or, or something, and rather than skipping over to Robert Leckie and, and uh, Eugene Sledge, had we, had we stuck with one set of characters and taken them through that horror story, it would have been more effective. Mm-hmm. That's uh, just incredible insights. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you can't put your finger on it, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, like it, it's just a bit different, right? Um, yeah. Captain Die, you've been so generous with your time and we really uh, appreciate you joining us today. The name of the show is, uh, is The Unlikely Innovators. And we often talk to like tech firms and entrepreneurs and, and people are doing incredible innovations in technology. So you've taken think, a step down to talk to me. Absolutely okay. not. I, <laughs> allow me to allow me to save myself here. The, the innovations that you've been able to instill in the whole generation of sort of filmmakers and 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 film watchers like myself and Mike uh, has just been nothing short of innovative as well. So uh, we wanted to thank you for that. And uh, I can't. I, I was. Uh, I was going to see if you were going to break the news on the new uh, uh, picture you're working on, but uh, we'll save that for I, some really I, uh, good I can't, guys. I would, I would <laughs> love to, um, uh, but I, I just can't. I'm, I'm under a non-disclosure. Of, of, course, of course. Of course. I'm only kidding. But uh, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we really look forward to, to everything you're doing in the future as well. Guys, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and insightful questions like this really 
um, really bring out the, the gut of an issue. And I think you guys have done that well. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Super. Thanks so much, Captain Dye. Really appreciate it. We're back. I just, uh, I still can't help but uh, smile at the, at the thought when, when Captain Dye said, interrupt me whenever you'd like. It's like, to be honest, if we had the whole afternoon, like you said, we would listen to him the whole afternoon. I also have to start incorporating shaggy dog stories into my vocabulary because it's such a great way of describing, I think, the, the narrative skills that he has, because he, qu he quite rightly is, is a guy who can kind of just hold courts and just kind of go on and on. And I think you and I probably could have asked him, you know, so many more questions that we didn't. And we appreciated um, you know, the time that he gave us, because I think we still, you know, we got to dig into a lot of these things. We obviously got to talk about, I think, what is arguably my favorite show of all time is, is Band of Brothers. And I'm sure that ranks Same. up up there with you as well, right? So, yeah, I mean, I like before Band of Brothers came out, believe it or not, I would watch Platoon on repeat uh, at least, uh, you know, a couple times a year with uh, with some of my uh, young friends. It came out the year I was born, as it, as it, uh, as it turns out. But uh, it, it's obvious. Um, that uh, the stories this man has that he didn't tell uh, could fill volumes. So I really hope one day we get a, a really good memoir from Dale Dye. Um, we could find out what he, what he said or did to get Oliver Stone in a room. Obviously by then the statute of limitations might've, yeah. might've passed, although it sounds like maybe, maybe not. So. Yeah. And of course he, uh, he worked with Oliver Stone again in JFK with another yeah. one of my uh, favorite films. So I'm uh, just, just on, on the whole, just a, one of those pinch me moments, you know, it was yeah. like that for Peter Mansbridge as two young Canadians. And then uh, obviously with Hadfield, but uh, Dale Dye really is, is way up there for me. Yeah. And I mean, the, the one thing that I really appreciated too, is that like, I, I didn't have the right way of, of, of kind of uh, articulating it, but he did when I was, I was trying to eventually in my mind, as he was talking, I kept thinking about how I can't rewatch the Pacific the way that I've rewatched mm. Band of Brothers. And I think it was, it was great that he kind of, I think, acknowledged that they tried yeah. to do too much, right? As much as I do think that it's definitely a much darker show because of the reality of combat in the Pacific theater. But I think his point of like, they did try to do too much. There was, well, there was a lot of like main characters and they kind of jumped all over the place, but, um, and then again, and that's of course why, you know, Band of Brothers is so timeless because I think yeah. you think of Damian Lewis and he's in Billions oh, and he's yeah. been in other things, but he's always gonna be major winners, right? Absolutely. Even like, I can't even remember, um, like Captain Nixon, what's like his actual name is uh, Ron Livingston, but yeah, yeah, he's he's always gonna be he's always gonna be Nixon, right? So yeah, yeah. it's no, yeah. I think it's and I mean, gosh, if the project he couldn't tell us about is as anywhere near those other uh, uh, pictures and 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 miniseries, like we're gonna have another uh, binge watch on our hands, Mike. Well, I, well, yeah, I'm sure. Again, it sounds like it. It's a mini series. I think it mm -hmm. is right. Which again would be incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we were just, I, I thought not, not that he was ever going to, you know, violate his NDA, <laughs> but I just thought, wow, I didn't know that because obviously you, you check out his Wikipedia page, his IMDB page, and yeah. there was nothing that we saw that was in production, you know, 2022, 23. So yeah. I'm definitely gonna be following that because if, again, if it's anything like his body of work, I'm sure it'll be an incredible, uh, you know, piece of history. So so we had a real treat for the listeners uh, this week, and I hope everyone uh, uh, fanboyed and girled as much as we did uh, when, when we were listening to uh, Captain Die. So thanks, everyone. See you next week. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel, presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.